Amen. The cross teaches us much. The cross where Christ died to pay the penalty for our sins that we may know life in the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. It's great to see you this morning. You ready for a fight? Our series is Fighting Christians, and we're walking through different things that Christians fight over, when we should, when we should not, and how. And I want you to, to be aware that, that, again, we can't cover everything in one message, even though I am tempted to try from time to time. Last week, we talked about arguing or disputes about personal convictions. Can you do this? And if you can, can I or should I? Is what... a is something that would be sinful or detrimental to me necessarily sinful and detrimental to you? And we talked about the difference between absolute truth and personal conviction. And we talked about the grace. This was Romans 14 and 15. I won't re-preach it. You can go back and listen to it. You can certainly study the word for yourself. I encourage you to. I exhort you to. Uh, so that you can see how to apply when to express personal liberty and when not. This morning, we're talking about something that I believe carries more weight when we should have some disagreements, and that is fighting over theology. So, well, what does that mean, fighting over theology? Well, what is theology? Theology is the study of God. In a broader context, it's the study of the doctrines that God has revealed in His Word. It's asking and answering the questions, who is God and what does he say? What are the truths, the absolute truths, the propositional truths, the doctrines that we are to believe? And we find one such disagreement in the text that Keegan read just a little while ago. In Acts chapter 15, we have the story of a dispute. The church, in Jer the church was established in Jerusalem, and I'm going to summarize this part. I would encourage you to go back and read all the first 14 chapters of Acts leading up to this. But the church was established in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and fell on the apostles and filled them. They preached in different languages and people were saved the first day 3,000 and thousands more just in the next weeks ahead as they preached in the temple as they suffered persecution as God brought many people into the family and the kingdom of God. Who was in Jerusalem that day? It's primarily Jewish people. It was primarily devout Jewish people. They knew the law. They knew the Mosaic law. They knew all the commands, not only the Ten Commandments, but the 613 additional commandments that were related to what it meant to be a, a pretty strict Pharisaical Jew, one who was really, really conforming their life and their decisions to what they believed God demanded and required of them so that they could be his people. Well, as time goes by, there is a I don't know, Christian diaspora maybe. There, there's persecution that comes in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, after Stephen's stoning, we have an increase in persecution. And the Christians, those Jewish believers, many of them new converts, those Jewish believers who have been taught by the apostles in Jerusalem, begin to travel out. And many of them travel north and they travel northwest. And there's a town up there called Antioch, and many of those Christians stopped there. They were also in Cilicia and other places where a lot of Gentiles were. As a matter of fact, the Bible says they, they preached first to the Jews who were there, but then they began also to preach to the Gentiles, the Hellenists, those who were Greeks, those Jews who had adopted Greek culture, but also those who had no Jewish background at all. They could have been Romans. They could have been from any of the nationalities that were represented in that country at that time and the Lord moved 
and as they proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus is salvation, that one is saved by grace through faith, through his accomplished work on the cross, they believed. God made them new. They were regenerate Christians. And all of a sudden, this church at Antioch began to grow. People from every, every uh, aspect of the culture, the rich and the poor, the different nationalities, the different languages and backgrounds. And the church at Antioch began to grow. The, church, the Christians in Jerusalem, this church, Peter, James, James, the brother of John, had already been uh, uh, killed. He had been uh, killed in that first persecution but James the brother of Jesus was there he was leading the congregation Peter was there the other disciples were there and they heard what was going on and so they they wanted to know what was going on I think for a variety of different reasons you can draw some assumptions but they sent Barnabas and Barnabas went and he heard the testimonies of people becoming saved and saw evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out, the transformed lives, the supernatural evidences, kind of the, the, those evidences that established. And he said, this is a work of God. This is as much a work of God as God did in Jerusalem. And so they are sister churches. He came back and he reported and they were so excited to hear. Barnabas went back and he went to Tarsus and he got Saul. You guys remember Saul? Now we call him Paul. He met the Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, brought him back to Antioch. And there they spent a year teaching and instructing these people in doctrine, in theological matters, in clear propositional truths. These things are true. And began to disciple them and to teach them and to train them. After they stayed there about a year, the Lord really laid it upon their heart. There was a famine in Jerusalem. They sent an offering down to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas went back. The Lord laid it on Paul and Barnabas' heart and the church in Antioch to send them out. They went on their first missionary journey. And that's how chapter 14 ends. Paul and Barnabas have had quite a journey. Not preaching that sermon today. But they come back and they share the goodness of God. And everyone rejoiced. And chapter 15 starts with the word but. And that's always kind of a warning sign. Something happened, something's going on. And it's a theological debate. It's a question. There were some people who came from Jerusalem. James makes it clear in his letter they'd sent to the church. They weren't sent from the leaders of the church at Jerusalem, but they volunteered to go. And when they went, they went with the idea of the Pharisees, which is to be a Christian, you have to follow Mosaic laws. At least you have to follow the identifying, clearly established by God since the time of Abraham. Don't forget this. They weren't coming up with something and enforcing it on them. They were teaching what they had been experienced all their life as accurate theology. And so they went and they said, listen, for you to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Fairly high commitment, all right? It's a pretty big theological thing. And follow the law of Moses. Now, are there things that Christians can disagree on? I sure hope so. There are a lot of things that Christians can disagree on. Are there non-negotiables, essentials, these things must be true for you to be saved? Yes, there are. There are some essentials. There are some non-negotiable propositional truths from Scripture. And this fight's over, it gives us a lot of principles to know what those are. The first point on our outline, if you're taking notes, and I would encourage you to scribble some things down. I tried to leave, leave some, uh, some 
some space. But the first point on our outline is that some fights, some debates, some disputing, some arguments are worth having. As a matter of fact, they are essential to have. While there are a lot of things we can disagree on, many things we can think about and practice differently, there are some fundamentals of the faith, some non-negotiables that must be believed and embraced in order to be saved. So how do you determine what those are? And I'm going to give you some principles today. I'm not going to list all these out today. We're not going to do a deep dive study into the the non-negotiables, the essentials of Christian doctrine. But I'm going to give you some principles, and we're going to look at just a few of them. The fundamentals are always the doctrines, the the non-negotiables, the essentials, and I'm going to use those interchangeably so you just substitute them as appropriate, are always clear in Scripture. All essential doctrines must come from the Word of God, by the way, which is an essential doctrine. That the Word of God is truth revealed by God through prophets, through the apostles, recorded and preserved, and is truth without any mixture of error. We have a high view of Scripture because it is demonstrable, it is true, it is rational. Uh, it, it It is the Word of God given to us and preserved for us. The Bible clearly contains all doctrine that is essential. They're not essential doctrines that are not part of Scripture. It is able to make us, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, when Paul was writing to Timothy, adequate and equipped for every good work. If there were necessary doctrines that weren't revealed in Scripture, that promise would ring empty. Paul reminded Timothy that the Scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation, 2 Timothy 3, 15, two verses before. During the Reformation, this principle was identified by a very brief Latin phrase called sola scriptura. The Bible is our authority for truth. Amen? Let's do better than that. I want you to embrace this, okay, or at least acknowledge. The Bible is our authority. It's not what someone else tells us. It's not our tradition. It's not our emotion or our feeling. God has spoken And he has preserved it for us, and he brings it to us, and his Holy Spirit makes it alive in us. But what about when people read the same passage, and they interpret it, or they understand it, or they apply it in different ways? Well, here's a principle, and if you don't know this, if this isn't familiar to you, just go ahead and and, and write it down. The main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Essential doctrines are clear in Scripture. The Bible's not a puzzle. The Bible's not like, oh, what does this seventh letter of this word and the seventh letter of that word all have in common? What does that mean? This is not, this is not some sort of a mystical guide that you have to dig in and figure out. The Bible speaks plainly, and the Bible speaks clearly. And yes, there are a lot of areas where we can have discussion and debate over what that means and how that I'm to live that truth out. But the truth, the essentials, the truth of the gospel, the truth of who God is, is not something that's aimed at intellectuals or those on on some sort of mystical level, it is simple enough for a child. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and and understanding and revealed them even to little children. The word of God's not a puzzle. It doesn't speak in riddles. It's not cryptic or mysterious. It is obvious to those who have spiritual ears to hear. Psalm uh, 
Psalm 19, the, uh, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So that first point is all essential doctrines are found in the Word of God. Good principle, right? If you nod, this will be a shorter sermon. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you. Don't, don't throw out your neck nodding there, but uh, good. The truth of God is always found in the Word of God. Essentials are clearly communicated in Scripture. And there are rooms. There are topics, ideas, understandings, where there's room for disagreement on some things and as to how people understand them and how they apply them. By the way, why does doctrine matter? Because the way you live is based on what you believe. Why does doctrine matter? Because there is truth, eternal propositional truth that is true truth, Francis Schaeffer. Why does doctrine matter? It matters because how we come together, how we organize and structure, how we allow God to live through us, how we understand what righteousness is, how we understand what it means to be his children, to be filled with him, to be used by him in his purposes, even what's coming next in the next life. All of this impacts our decisions, how we talk, to the extent how to what extent God can use us for his glory doctrine matters but there are things on which we can disagree and I started to put a list of things of, upon which we can disagree but I didn't want to f- encourage any disagreement how about that <laughs> here here are just a few uh, different churches approach worship services in different ways When I was on staff at the Lexington Baptist Association in the Midlands of South Carolina, we had at that time about 81, 82 churches in the association, and I was supposed to be in a different church every Sunday. Guys, there's only 52 weeks in a year. And so I would go to sometimes one service, early service, one church, early service, another church, late service, sometimes Sunday morning, one church, Sunday night, another church. And I got to tell you, while there there was a wide variety of the personalities of those churches and the expressions and the convictions of those churches and how they worshiped. But they, they were in significantly great agreement on the essentials of the faith. There's a difference in how believers consider the events of the end times. Are you a pre, post, or amillennialist? Millennialist. Are you a pre-tribulation rapture? Are you a preterist? Now I'm just going to tell you, we can be brothers and sisters. We can have a walk with God. We can fellowship. We can be in the same congregation. And you be wrong on that issue. I'm kidding. Or I be wrong on that issue. Or frankly, are both of us be wrong on that issue. It does not impact our standing before God. You understand what I'm saying when I talk about essentials and non-negotiables? Okay, good. Even something as simple as how often or how to observe the Lord's Supper. And the ordinances of the church. These things are important. They should be studied. They should be applied. But I can love and fellowship with brothers and sisters and have friendly discussions with them about areas of disagreement and still maintain unity. And quite frankly, when I meet with other pastors, we frequently do discuss those items and still love one another. This is not going to be a doctrinal class here, obviously, but I do want to give you some principles and some key truths we can constantly apply when it comes to non-negotiables, things worth fighting over, if you want to put it another way. Second point on the outline, and I'm going to give you a list of some theological non-negotiables, some principles, and then some, some simple statements. Principle number one, everything that is essential to saving faith is a non-negotiable. There's only one way to be saved. 
There's only one person in whom salvation is enabled in rest. There's only one means to God. Jesus said, I am the way. In Acts, the proclamation of the disciples inspired by the Holy Spirit is there is no other name whereby men can be saved. There's only one way of salvation. Everything that is essential to save or necessary to saving faith is an essential doctrine. And so you can go and put up there the gospel. The gospel is salvation by grace through Christ Jesus alone. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so no one can boast. You remember Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not works, so no man could boast. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul summarizes the gospel when he says, I would remind you, brothers, the gospel that I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you of first importance. This is an essential, non-negotiable. Of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted, Paul says, the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me, whether then it was I or they. So we preached. Here's the gospel, one gospel. They preached, I preached, and you believed. And can we play with the tenets of the gospel, the truths of the gospel? Can we twist them and fit them to meet our traditions, our cultures, or make us comfortable? And the answer is no, we cannot. That is a propositional truth. Now, we're going to come back a little bit deeper in that in just a moment. But the Galatians, there was a church that was established in the city or the region of Galatia. And there were Christians there. And there was a lot, pretty heavy Jewish influence. And Paul had been there on his missionary journeys. And he had established a church and preached truth. And he goes away and he writes a letter to them. And one of the things that he says in this letter, he says, I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit. You guys are blowing my mind. I can't believe how quickly you've left the tenets of the gospel. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, Jesus, in the grace of Christ, and that you're turning to a different gospel. N not that there is another one. There's only one gospel. But there are some who trouble you, and they want to distort or change or adjust the gospel. But listen to this. I don't care if it's me or an angel from heaven, if they show up at your church or come to you and they preach to you a gospel that is different than the gospel you've received from us, let him be anathema. Let him be cursed. Let him be condemned. Let him be damned. Because there's only one gospel. There's only one gospel. And indeed, that's, isn't that the debate that was in Acts 15? They changed the gospel. These, these pharisaical Judaizers, by the way, I, they, 
The word we call them is Judaizers because they thought people had to become Jews to become Christians. Okay? So they were making people into Jews, Judaizers. They went to Antioch and they said, for you to be saved, really saved, you've got to follow the law of Moses. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to follow the law of Moses. That is not the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith, not of works. As a matter of fact, through Peter, Peter had shared the gospel with Cornelius. Go back to Acts chapter 10. God blew his mind. You remember when God brought the food down on the, in his vision while he was on the, the tanner's roof? And then he sent him to the Gentiles. All of this stuff took place. Big deal for the Jews to open up their minds to the truth that God had been revealing. That the Gentiles were welcome with the same gospel. That was the debate. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. But salvation is by grace alone. Solo gracia. It's not something that we do, including circumcision or any of the law. We enter by, into salvation by faith alone. Sola fide. Salvation is not a religious belief. Salvation is not a system. Salvation is not a lifestyle. Salvation is a person the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, what are the essential doctrines? All doctrines that relate to who Jesus is, what he came to do, how he did it, his incarnation, all of these are essential doctrines. Okay? Let's run through some of these really quick. Simply put, Jesus... Born of a virgin, essential because his sinlessness. He's not of the lineage of Adam. Tied into that and the expression of that, the deity of Christ. Jesus was fully God. If I had time, I'd tell you of great church fights about this topic throughout history, including St. Nicholas, by the way. But I don't. You can look it up. It's a great discussion. But how that applies today a doctrine worth fighting over. You understand that the Mormon church, you understand that the Jehovah's Witness church, you understand that there are a lot of groups that would identify as Christian or some aspect of Christianity don't believe this. They don't believe that Jesus is God, fully God. That he died, that Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sin. We call this doctrine substitutionary atonement. It's found in Romans chapter 3. It's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It's found throughout scripture how that we had to have a perfect, sinless person, the Lamb of God, perfect, die in our place while the wrath of God was poured out upon him that we might be forgiven. You have to believe in his bodily resurrection. I just read a portion of 1 Corinthians 15. If you read just a little bit further, the scriptures say if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and our faith is vanity and worthless. That's a pretty clear statement. That's an essential doctrine, yes? Is this sounding a little bit too much like a classroom? Important truths. Important truths. Which brings us to another principle. A doctrine is essential if Scripture says don't deny it. If the Scripture says you can't deny it. And in 1 John chapter 4 and here, to deny the resurrection, to deny the incarnation makes those doctrines essential doctrines. Just to move on quickly, doctrines that reveal the character of God as he's revealed himself in Scripture are essential doctrines. There is only one God. We call that monotheism. Monotheism. Remember the very first of the Ten Commandments. Remember the, the Shema that 
Moses gave to the Israelites in Deuteronomy chapter 6. There is one God expressed in three persons, uh, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and of course, the inspiration and the authority of Scripture. So here's the, here's the question, and, and, and I don't want to get too bogged down here. If, if we agree on these things, why can't we all just get along? First of all, do we agree on these things? Are there some things we're saying this is absolute truth and it's a hill on which to die? If someone comes to your congregation and they say, I think people can be saved a different way. Or they say, I think it doesn't matter that much what you believe as long as you believe it with your whole heart. Or they say some other theological hogwash like that. You have an obligation. Listen to me. You have an obligation to stand up and speak truth into that situation. Now, you need to do it in a way that glorifies God. You need to do it at the right time and at the right place. But you, there are some things over which you cannot be silent. Amen? That's why I asked if you were ready to fight. There are some things worth fighting over. And the Lord Jesus Christ is one of them. Amen? All right. So there are some theological non-negotiables. But there are a lot of areas where you can apply and express some aspects of, of theology differently. And so churches throughout history have done this. We're a Baptist church. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Baptist church? Why do Baptists do things differently than Presbyterians? Why do Baptists do things differently than assemblies or Nazarene or, or some other local denomination why do baptist churches do some things that are just different from other baptist churches and so i want to just identify just a touch of baptist distinctives there are some things that we hold to that we believe are either mandated or demonstrated in scripture really quickly the first thing is the autonomy of the local church uh, the first thing these are in no certain order okay the autonomy of the local church. What does that mean? It means we don't have a hierarchy of someone outside of the local congregation. Every congregation is independent and self-governing. That's clear enough, right? Who's the boss? Uh, there was a time when at a church I pastored, some members wanted me gone. And so they went to the local association and they said, we have a problem with our pastor. We need you to remove him. And the director of missions at the association said, well, first of all, if you have a problem with your pastor, let's meet together with your pastor and let's resolve the problem. But in the second place, I have no authority over your congregation, none. I can give you counsel. I can open the word of God to you. I can help with conflict resolution. I can help to the extent that I'm able and you let me in. But your congregation has to make whatever decisions it makes about staff, about leadership, about doctrine, about direction. That's what we mean by autonomy of the local church. We believe that there are two ordinances, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper and the ordinance of believers' baptism by immersion. Again, these are Baptist distinctives where the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church memorialize the death of our Savior Jesus Christ and we anticipate his second coming. 
We believe in baptism by immersion. I was walking down the street here with some of you guys. You'll remember the conversation. We met a couple coming this way, and we invited them to church. And he said, well, what kind of church are you? And he said, well, we're a Baptist church. He said, oh, you're guys who like to get people wet. <laughs> well, yeah, we do. He said, uh, he said well, is it okay if we didn't? Because he said, I'm used to just sprinkle. Is sprinkling okay? I said, well, let's sit down and talk about it. But a Baptist distinctive, distinctive is baptism by immersion. And I'm, I'm not going to go and teach that doctrine right now, but I will tell you it is simply modeled after what Christ did. The key part for us is it's believer's baptism. Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit as an act of obedience, symbolizing the believer's faith, symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior. The believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in newness of life. It's what you saw when Caleb made his public testimony through baptism on Easter Sunday morning. We believe a Baptist, and when I say distinctive, I don't mean Baptists aren't the only ones who do this, but they do characterize Baptist belief. We believe in regenerate church membership. That means to be a member of the church, you have to have a testimony. You have to be, you have to be saved have to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what being a member of his body is. We believe in religious liberty, that God alone is the Lord of our conscience. And he has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are contrary to his word or not contained in it. Church and state is separate. The state owes to every church protection and full freedom in the pursuit of its spiritual ends. But in providing for such freedom, no ecclesiastical group or denomination should be favored by the state more than others. Civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience thereto in all things not contrary to the revealed will of God. That's our study in Romans chapter 13, just recently uh, titled, When Government Gets It Wrong. You remember that? Okay, good. Another one I want to highlight is evangelism and missions. We believe it is every believer's privilege and responsibility to proclaim the name of Christ to a lost and fallen world. Okay, some things are negotiable, some things are not negotiable. There are some things we can disagree with and still be a part of God's family and God's broader family, even in a local congregations. So now we come to the sermon, that's the introduction. How do we fight? How do we fight? What do we find in Acts chapter 15? We find an issue that's serious. And it's serious enough, to, in, I think it's verse 7, where, Paul, where it's one of the early verses where it says this was no, no short discussion. <laughs> it was a long one. They tried to get to the heart of it and they said, let's go back to Jerusalem church where you guys came from, where you guys are purporting to represent. And let's get this issue resolved. They shared testimonies of salvations along the way. People rejoiced. They arrived and they said, we got an issue. We have a problem. And a council was convened. It wasn't just one person or just two people. But let me give you just a few principles as you go through these kind of discussions. Doctrinal differences. Oh, well, let's just point four on the outline. Theological fights are characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Theological fights should be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. You guys know the fruits of the Spirit? Give me the first three. 
Love, joy, and peace. Does that sound like a fight to you? It does not. Can it be? Can you enter into a disagreement? Can you enter into something to say, this is a non-negotiable, and still love them? Still be filled with joy as you approach them and pray joy for them? And still enter it in a peaceable manner? And I'm going to tell you that you can. Your whole life is to be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit. Particularly when there's disagreement. Doctrinal differences must be resolved, but they also should be an attempt to preserve unity without compromising the truth of the gospel. And so some ways that you do that, you hear them out. You make sure you understand what they're saying. How many, how many debates could be resolved if we just understood what they were telling us? If we knew what they were saying, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem heard the Judaizers, these guys who were saying, you gotta follow the law. And I can just imagine this. I can say, hey, Moses said it, it must be true. God said it, it came down from Sinai. It's not been changed in thousands of years. How dare you try to change it now? You're putting words in God's mouth. Now, doesn't that make sense? But I could have come down on that side of the argument. But for one thing, Christ came and changed everything. He did it in a different way. He was what all of that pointed to. He is the culmination of God's plan of salvation. And so... Peter and Paul, but here, Peter and James, go back to salvation by grace through faith. Lays a a whole new foundation for what it means to be a believer. It's no longer Jew, and it's not you have to become a Jew to be one of God's people. Now Jews have to come by grace through faith. And Gentiles come by grace through faith. And you're no longer Jew, you're no longer Gentile. Now you're a believer, first known as Christians at Antioch. It's a whole new thing. He's establishing it, but you've got to listen. You've got to hear them out. You've got to recognize that scriptures are the final authority. James supports the testimony of Peter and Paul and Barnabas because the quote that he had in Acts chapter 15, verses 15 through 18, is a quote from Amos, the prophecy, when he talks about the gospel coming to the Gentiles. The mind of the Spirit. In verse 28, they concluded it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. The mind of the Spirit is not determined by our subjective feelings but by what spirit-inspired prophets and apostles wrote in God's word. Search the scriptures. And then I want to close with this because there's something about disagreement that we've got to understand. There are some things where you have to say this is a non-negotiable. And you have to act upon that. You can't just let it go. You have to act upon it in the context of a local body. But there are a lot of things where you can say what Paul said last week here last week in Romans 14 and 15 all things are lawful for me but all things are not beneficial first Corinthians chapter 10 I have liberty Romans chapter 14 but I get to limit my liberty for the good of others James comes down and he emphasizes salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone and that's what we're going to tell him but he didn't just say and that's all we're going to tell him he said there are a lot of Jews who've gotten saved and there are new Christians there And the law of Moses is being taught in the synagogues all the time there. And so we're going to give them some, not essentials of the faith, but some practices that they can engage in to help maintain unity in the body. And so he writes them a letter. In order not to offend the Jews, the Gentile converts were asked to abstain from three things that violated the ceremonial law. Things contaminated 
contaminated by idols, that which is strangled in blood. Years ago, I went to Puerto Rico on a mission trip, and we were working with deaf people there in the, in the island. And we started in San Juan, we went down to Ponce, we went, we went up to Arecibo. In the middle of the island, in Barranquitas or Barranquilla, there was, a, there was a, a little church that had been established, and the pastor had stood up in that church, and he told all these people, you can't eat chicken anymore. They weren't bad, just, no, I'm kidding, they were but you can't eat chicken anymore. And I asked him, I said, why would you tell your congregation they can't eat chicken? He said, because you know how we kill chickens here? Do y'all know how to kill a chicken? (laughs) Some of you guys are city folks. You don't know what I'm talking about. All right. But I will tell you, there are two main ways that you kill a chicken when you have them on, on your property. You cut off their head. Or you wring their neck. All right, it's not as simple as it sounds. But one of the things that it says here, by the way, that's McDonald's food. This is good stuff. It's okay. All right. But one of the, uh, maybe Chick-fil-A. That's Chick-fil-A food. It's, it's, it's okay. But one of the things it says in this passage is that James wrote to the church at Antioch. He said, don't eat food that's been strangled. And this guy said, right there, word of God. It says you can't eat food that's been strangled. You know how we kill our chickens? We've strangled them. And so we can't eat chicken. And so I sat down with him, and this took about two days, okay? And I explained what was going on, what the context was, and the difference between salvation by grace through faith and the non-negotiable, and then the negotiable. I didn't get that. Could you try again? I don't know what to say to this. Is, is that the word of the Lord saying I need to be clearer in this communication? <laughs> There's a difference between the non-negotiable of the gospel, get this right, and the negotiable that he is requiring, he says, but he's recommending, but he gives the reason for it earlier. The reason for it is because He doesn't want to be a stumbling block to the Jews that are in that area either. And so he's telling them how they can maintain unity while holding on to gospel truth. Now, there's one thing in this list that doesn't fit that. He tells them also, you must abstain abstain from sexual immorality. Well, why would he put that in there? That's not a negotiable. That's a clear teaching of a transformed life. And I believe the reason that he did that was because he's talking to Gentiles who were raised in the temples and sexual immorality was part of their lifestyle up until that point. And so he's reemphasizing them. The gospel of grace doesn't give you license to continue those behaviors. It changes the way that you live. Does that make sense? Okay. Why does all this matter? I didn't understand what you said. Should you say it again? Here's the summary. Doctrine matters and some of them you need to fight for. Some of them, you should be willing to be graceful over. I'm not saying they're not important. They're still important. But you extend grace and you engage and you seek. God, they matter, 
So you should seek to follow what the Word of God says. Here's a, here's a point of maturity, folks. Part of maturity is knowing the difference. It's knowing the difference. And we live in a world in which truth is flexible. And yet, truth is not flexible. It either is or it isn't. And we need to understand truth because it matters for the eternity, for the life now and for the eternity of the people that we meet every day. Isn't God good? Father, thank you that you give us doctrine, that you give us teaching, that you give us your word. Thank you that you communicate truth to us in an understandable way. Thank you that you give us those things that we get to hold on to, that we must hold on to. Everything related to salvation, everything related to truth, those things that are propositionally true statements, help us to become students of your word so we may know what those are and embrace them. Father, in areas where there is room for disagreement, where it's not an essential of the faith, where where the scripture maybe does not speak as clearly in its application or even in its understanding, help us to be filled with grace. Help us to seek to know and apply it to the best of our knowledge and ability led by your Holy Spirit, but to be gracious in seeking unity one with another. Father, never let us forget, never let us forget that Jesus is salvation, that Jesus is truth, that Jesus is the word, the living word, the way of life to put our faith in him and to share him with others. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.